Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Who Says No. We did one New York podcast earlier this week, but since it was the Knicks, it was pretty low stakes in the grand scheme of things, at least compared to this season, where honestly, we, we think the Knicks are probably going to be a play-in team. The other New York team, a lot would have to go wrong for them to be a play-in team. We're talking about the championship favorite Brooklyn Nets, and we're going to try to figure out which teams actually have a genuine chance of beating them. Joining me from Nets Daily, he is, I think now, firmly the number two guest on this podcast behind Yossi in terms of number of appearances is Billy Reinhardt. Billy, Billy, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I remember last time you told me I was tied with him for the number of podcasts. This is now my third time on, on the pod. How many times has he been on? I got to catch him. So here's the issue. He's the most available person I know. Not like he's very busy, but he'll always make the time. So the thing that really pushed him over the top was I could not find anybody to do a Russell Westbrook podcast on draft night because everybody in the NBA was super busy. So I know that he wakes up super early. So I texted him at 445 in the morning Pacific time. And he's like, yeah, sure, man, let's do it. Billy, I love you. I don't think you would do a 445 in the morning podcast. That's what gives <laughs> him the edge. He's just got that dedication. The advantage I have is that He's, I'm on the East Coast. So 445 your time oh, would that's be true. 45 mine. It would be a little more doable. But I see how it is. You're picking favorites here. But I'm happy to be number two. He's the Jimmy Butler of this podcast. He's the one doing workouts at insane hours. Like, nobody can compete with that. That is true. <laughs> yeah. But we're going to talk about the Nets today because I have finally seen the light. I did around, I'm going to say, game three or game four of the of the Brooklyn-Milwaukee series. Even though they were losing those games in Milwaukee, the way that the Nets were able to defend and the way that they were able to score even without all three of their stars, it just became pretty obvious to me at that point. I had been clinging to the idea that the Nets were flawed enough that they weren't championship favorites at that stage. No. Coming into this season, the Nets are in a tier by themselves. They're the heavy championship favorites. They're not Golden State-level favorites because the Warriors were this good on offense but equally good on defense. But the Nets are close enough that I feel comfortable calling them the heavy championship favorites. But what we're going to do today is figure out who actually has a chance of beating them if they're healthy. Billy, you think there's only one team, correct? If they're fully healthy, I think there's one team, correct. So why don't we just dive into that right there? I don't have the Lakers number one on my list, but I know that you do. So explain to me why you find them so threatening. Yeah, I think the gap between the Nets and Lakers has lessened considerably after this offseason. And I like what the Nets did. Um, obviously, extending Kevin Durant is a huge thing. But in terms of what helps them for next season, they retained Blake Griffin. They added Patty Mills, which was a big pickup. They retained Bruce Brown. Uh, they lost Jeff Green, which will be a tough loss. A few other pieces here and there. But um, I think the Nets got, got marginally better. And I think they'll get better with their second year with their big three together. And hopefully they're more healthy and they have more time to um, get together and just work out those chemistry issues. Um, but the Lakers, I really like what they did. And I think I'm higher on Russell Westbrook, not super high, like out of, out of this world, but I think I have more faith in him um, and some of the veterans on that roster. I am a little biased, I'd say, towards veterans, especially for championship teams. I like when they're built towards that way. Um, and I think a lot of the concerns I've seen on Twitter that you have for the Lakers, um, they sound very similar to a lot of the concerns you have for the Nets last year. I think you just have some reservations about fit. And I think you tend to look at fit a little too much, in my opinion, where I predominantly think that talent ultimately wins out in the end. And I think the Lakers are the only team with even in striking distance of the Nets' talent right now. I think that's fair from a pure talent perspective. As far as fit goes, I think my Lakers' concerns are more legitimate than my Nets' concerns were because shooting amplifies shooting, right? The more shooting you have, 
the more dangerous the shooting you already have becomes. Whereas with the Lakers, like ball handling doesn't really amplify itself in that way. Like having multiple ball handlers that are like really dangerous, that helps. It's nice to have. But the fundamental question that nobody has given me a satisfactory answer to yet is what happens when Russell Westbrook doesn't have the ball? And if he turns into an elite cutter, he's moving off the ball, if he's more dedicated on defense, then, you know, you really have something and you have a real threat to the Nets. If it's the Russell Westbrook we've seen basically his entire career, I don't think that's the case. I think that Russell Westbrook's going to make the Lakers a lot more dynamic in a transition. So maybe they're not as elite. I mean, they weren't a great offensive team in the half court last year anyway, but maybe they're not as good as they were. But I think they're going to get some points in other areas. Like in transition, I think they're going to be better. Westbrook's going to take balls off the glass, take it uh, coast to coast. And that's going to help their efficiency there. And I, I do believe that Westbrook, one of the few guys, I mean, he played with Kevin Durant, but he viewed Kevin Durant as more of a contemporary, in my opinion. They came up young together, um, and they, they were both almost competing at times for, for the same goal. Whereas LeBron, he's someone that's a little bit older. I mean, he's King James. He's the, he's the king of this era, a guy who's in the GOAT conversation. I think that Russell Westbrook will kind of take a backseat to LeBron, and that might be the only guy that he'd be willing to do that. Whereas he's played with Harden and KD in the past. And like I said, he thinks they're more contemporaries to him. So um, I think he's realizing he's coming home to L.A. Um, he's trying to win. He's going to do whatever he can to fit in there. And I think Westbrook's going to be a guy that's going to help them in the regular season in terms of low management with LeBron and A.D. Um, but he'll have his he'll have his struggles here and there. There will be a, people that want to point out the fit issues at, at, at a first or second round playoff series. But I think the Lakers talent, if healthy, will get them to a conference finals or a finals. And then at that point, and especially in a matchup with the Nets, this is why the Lakers scare me. The storylines are going to play a role on the court. Because a guy like Russell Westbrook, you know how competitive he is. That's going to be up a tick even more against Kevin Durant and James Harden in the finals. Even against Kyrie Irving, and I've seen this in, over the last couple of years. Russell Westbrook, you watch him against most guys. Um, a couple guys in the league, when he plays Steph and Dame, he ups his level. When he plays Kyrie, he really ups his level, and he tries to take it to him. You know in Russ's head, he thinks he's every bit as good as Kyrie. So, I mean, just that mindset that he has, and I think the stars, LeBron and AD, are going to feel similarly in having that trust in him that he, they think, okay, he can go up and match up with Kyrie. And then we got LeBron, he can go up with Harden or KD. And then, like, they think they're three for three in terms of stars. And I think that mental edge and that competitiveness is going to really translate on the court. And I think it's going to be a really competitive series if we do get that matchup. I'm a little scared of the over-competitiveness in a final setting where, like, I don't want Westbrook playing that series thinking I have something to prove. In the NBA Finals, you want LeBron controlling as much as possible, and everything you do should be to supplement him. And Westbrook thinking, yeah, I've got to prove something to Durant, I've got to prove something to Harden. That's a little scary for me, but you mentioned the load management portion of it, and that's the single most important element for the Lakers, right? It's Ultimately, if you look at the way that last year's postseason played out, if they're healthy, I have to assume they would have won the title, right? With Brooklyn not standing in their way, and the Clippers ultimately getting hurt. So I think they believe that as long as they get to the playoffs, as long as they get to the finals at full strength, they can figure all of the other stuff out. I am a little dubious about that. And we haven't even talked about the defense yet. There are so many guys on this team that Brooklyn's isolation players are just going to pick apart, right? Like Malik Monk, Carmelo Anthony, um, Kendrick Nunn, Wayne Ellington. Like these are all guys that are going to get picked apart on defense. And I'm really worried that some of them just have too much political capital to get put on the bench, right? Like, I think the best version of the Lakers is probably the one with the three stars, Trevor Ariza and Ken Bazemore, because that's the one that balances shooting and defense the most. 
realistically, like, Carmelo Anthony is not a player that you sign saying, you might get DNP'd some nights. No, like, LeBron recruited him personally. I think he expects to play a somewhat substantial bench role. Well, guess what? If you put Carmelo on the floor against the Nets, he's going to get destroyed. But uh, at the same time, who do you trust as a shot maker more in a final setting, Trevor Reza or Carmelo Anthony? I mean, Carmelo, but I just think that when you're the fourth shot maker on a roster or even in a lineup, that carries significant diminishing returns. I don't know. Like, I just, I think you have to be so good on offense to justify Carmelo's defense at this point in his career. And when you're the fourth option in major lineups, it's just not possible to be that good on offense. See, I don't, I think the Nets are going to be so elite offensively. They already were all-time great this year. They're going to be even better next year, I think. And a guy like Patty Mills is only going to add to that. Um, but they're going to be so all-time great on offense that I don't think the Lakers can sacrifice offense for these defense guys like like a like a Bazemore or Trevor Reese. I mean, you're hoping that Bazemore, Bazemore can keep up his shooting from last year and not revert back um, into a low or mid-30s guy. Um, Reza, he's getting up there year after year. You don't know how many, he can fall off a cliff in a year. So you don't know um, what he's going to provide on the offensive end. Um, so that's a bit scary. And I think a guy like Carmelo Anthony, he's going to, you think about the Nets, KD, Harden, and Kyrie, they're going to close out harder on Melo. Uh, than Ariza, obviously. They're going to respect him more, and that's going to help the shooting concern that you have at Russell Westbrook. Um, and I think maximizing what those guys can do on the off- offensive end to keep up with the Nets is maybe more important than trying to stop them defensively, because I don't think you're going to stop Kyrie, uh, uh, KD, and Harden when they're on the floor together. So um, it's an interesting philosophy to think about, and then hopefully we get two full-strength regular season matchups to kind of play around with it and see how it fits. Um, but I don't think teams trying to stop the Nets is the way to go when they're all healthy. When one's hurt or one's two, when two is hurt, or two are hurt. Like in the Bucks series, we saw that the Bucks can really key on KD then and make it difficult. But I mean, the Nets were facing no resistance over the first six playoff games or seven playoff games um, when they had their guys healthy relatively. So uh, I just don't think you can balance the floor defensively enough when you have three guys that one on one can beat anybody that's in front of them. So offensively, I think the Lakers have to try and match the Nets more than um, people think. I honestly. Did you ever think six months ago that we'd be doing a podcast where I was defending the Nets and you were defending the Lakers? <laughs> well, listen, I, I always thought you'd come around on the Nets because I just believed in it so much. Um, and like I said, I think your natural inclination, which is a lot of people and people that I normally go back and forth with on Twitter, that value fit too heavily. One of the guys I love in the NBA is Daryl Morey. I mean, he's a star chaser. He, he, he just continued to turn the roster in Houston, maybe a little too much. But he was always chasing the star power. He believes talent can win. And my philosophy is very similar to that. So uh, I think these guys can come together. I think when you get high IQ, unselfish guys, and Russ, a a mislabel that he's got, he's he's a bad teammate. People love Russ. So um, I think he's coming to Lakers, like I said. He will be willing to take a little bit of a backseat. And he scares me a lot more from a Nets perspective um, than than Dennis Schroeder or um, any of the real point guards they could have added this summer that were possible. So I think the Lakers, in my mind, are definitely a more feared team at this point. Yeah, I'll say this. Like, despite all of my concerns about fit, this pathway was better than running it back. I would rather they have Russell Westbrook than Dennis Schroeder and KCP and that whole, like, just bringing back last year's group. The path I would have preferred was the Buddy Heald path, because in that scenario, you can maybe use the mid-level. on. Like, at that point, you can offer Patty Mills a starting job. Like, it's no secret that he was deciding between the Nets and the Lakers. If the Lakers could have offered him a starting job, maybe he would have come. I don't know. You would have had more shooting. You still would have had KCP. Maybe you keep Caruso, too. 
you have more depth, like you can still add some pretty good guys for the minimum. But that was the pathway I preferred. Even still, with Russell Westbrook, they're the Western Conference favorite, right? Like, I'm not saying they're as overwhelming a favorite as Brooklyn is in the East, but I, I think it's by far the likeliest outcome, if everybody's healthy, is a Nets-Lakers final. So, like, as many concerns as I have, we have to ground them in the fact that those concerns only really apply to the Nets. And maybe the second team, the Milwaukee Bucks, who I actually think got a fair bit better this offseason if you count Dante DiVincenzo as an addition, right? Because he didn't play against the Nets last time. I think it's really been overstated how impactful P.J. Tucker was in that series. And I am the leader of the P.J. Tucker fan club. But, like, I'm sorry. When Kevin Durant can score 50 in Game 5 and Game 7 that easily, like, I'm not going to say that easily, rather. When you can do it twice like that, I just don't know how much credit you can really give a defense, right? Like, if it was one outlier shooting performance, sure. But Kevin Durant had no trouble getting his own buckets. I think going into this series next year, obviously Durant is still going to be incredible. There are going to be some matchup issues that we can get into. But, like, he's not going to score 50 twice in that series again if Harden and Kyrie are playing, right? Probably not. I would assume not. But, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I see, I think Tucker... From watching that series, I, I think the Bucks' strategy, um, especially early on, was to play KD more straight up. I mean, they realize he's someone you're not going to take away, so let's just put our best individual defender on him and have him make him work, be super physical. And I think their strategy, once Kyrie went down, I mean, you saw them in Game 5. KD started going off at, against this, but it, it was a sound strategy initially to tire KD out. Um, they were full-court pressing KD. Um, so the Nets ended up coming up, Blake was setting screens at the half-court mark, and then KD was coming downhill against Brook Lopez and getting layups, and that's kind of how he started getting going in that in that 49-point um, performance in Game 5. Um, but their idea, I think, was to tire him out, and you saw that pay dividends later in the series. I mean, who knows if this was the reason why, but in OT, that shot came up short. It looked like it was online, but he was gassed. I mean, KD's one of those guys, when he's on the floor, he doesn't even break a sweat. He literally does not sweat. I mean, you look at the end of that game seven, he gave everything he had. He was visibly fatigued. So I think that that really was a grind for him during the series. And um, that was just their strategy of how to play him. But I did think that P.J. Tucker was a lot more valuable than people want to give him credit for. Well, let's go this direction then. P.J. Tucker is gone. Who do you think is defending Durant? Like, how do you think they're aligning their defenders in that series? It should be Giannis. I don't I'm not even worried about the weak side defense. I think you should put. Unless you see that Harden and Kyrie are just torching the, the Milwaukee guards and getting to the cup and you need more rim protection, I think it has to be Giannis on KD because any time KD had Chris Middleton on him, he was going right at him and seemed to be scoring time after time. I, mean, I don't know what the numbers were on that, but just from my view of watching the series, every time he switched off Tucker and he got Middleton on him, he seemed to get uh, comfortably into his sweet spots, sweet spots and, and get a bucket. So um, I don't think it should be Middleton. I think Giannis is the best matchup. Maybe they'll save that for late in games when the Nets are maybe running a little less pick and roll and more KD isos. Um, but I think Giannis is definitely the best option. He should be. He's a, he's the former defensive player of the year. Yeah, I think I'm inclined to agree. I think the only real argument for Middleton or anybody else is with Harden and Kyrie, it's just going to be a lower impact job of guarding Durant, right? Like Tucker guarding Durant mattered so much in that late in that series last year because Durant was the only guy that Brooklyn had that could generate a shot, right? That's not going to be the case next year. So even if Middleton is a worse defender than Tucker, obviously, if he's guarding Durant, that's not going to be as tiring. It's not going to be as impactful. If Harden is taking all the shots that Harden takes and Kyrie's taking all the shots that Kyrie takes, 
I want to move on to offense, though, because this is where I think a lot of the gap has been made up. Going into that series last year, like, the, the Bucks just couldn't generate any shots. They scored um, 106.4 points per 100 possessions in the half court against the Nets last year. That would have ranked 27th in the NBA during the regular season. I think they figured some stuff out in the Phoenix series specifically. They got up to 115.7 against the Suns. I think we agree that the Suns are a better defensive team than the Nets. But then they add all of the shooting, right? With Dante DiVincenzo coming back, with George Hill coming back, with Grayson Allen coming in. Like, I think the space that they've got, they've added from getting rid of Tucker, who the Nets just didn't really guard, to adding three very high-level shooters is going to make a big difference for them offensively. I, I could agree with you, although we never know how these shooters really translate to a playoff setting. I mean, we saw with Joe Harris this year, tremendous shooter. You can't really ask for a better shooter, and then he just falls apart. A lot of these guys that are really shoot-first guys, like a Grayson Allen type that they had now, or Pat Connaughton had a surprisingly very good playoff run. Um, who would have known that he would have outplayed Joe Harris in that series? So it's really tough to predict the shooters um, aspect of things. There's a lot of variance there. Um, but I do think they're, what I think they're going to miss is on the defensive side, Tucker allowed them to go small in terms of having a guy that could switch out. And that's going to be even more important next year if Harden and Kyrie are healthy because that's going to have more screen and roll. And uh, they need someone at the five that could switch out. Brooke Lopez, if they're going to play drop, Harden and Kyrie are going to torch them. If they, Lopez can't switch onto either one of them. Portis, I don't think, can either. And you'd like to go with Giannis at the five, but you don't have, I don't think you have enough forwards now to do that. You'd have to go with Connaughton, um, DiVincenzo, Middleton, and Holiday, I guess, or throw George Hill in there for one of them. And then they're playing smaller, and them downsizing, I think, places the Nets' advantage. And I, I just think they play more of a, uh, they've kind of lost their matchup, uh, mismatch, I guess, uh, capability with the Nets, where they would cause the Nets some issues. Like, one of the reasons, we'll get into them later, but one of the reasons why Philadelphia has always scared me a little bit more than maybe people would think over the last couple of years is because Embiid's obviously a great player, but he also just happens to be the biggest mismatch for the Nets specifically. They just don't have that guy to match up with him. So now that the Bucks, their strength seems to be a little more floor spacing, sure, but going to be downsized more with a little less defense. I don't think they can match the Nets offensively, and defensively they've gotten worse. So it kind of goes back into that um, catch-22. They upgrade one end, but uh, downgrade on the other end. So um, I don't know. I think when we watched the first two games of that series, the Nets were wiping the floor at the Bucks. Game three, uh, they lost the buzzer, and that was because of uh, Bruce Brown making a boneheaded play, which was a, a rare mistake. And then you got game four where Nets get blown out, but Kyrie gets hurt. So I really don't know. I don't, I don't think the Bucks are competing with the Nets. They maybe go six. I don't think the Bucks are going beyond six if the Nets are fully healthy. Yeah, I think the issue with downsizing more than anything is one of the big advantages the Bucks have over the Nets is that they were killing them on the glass. And if yeah. you go small with, with Brooke Lopez out of the game, I mean, I think they still have an advantage, but it's not nearly as big. If you're making enough shots that you don't need the putbacks, okay, some of that is made up for. But then on defense, if you're giving up offensive rebounds to the Nets, like it's hard enough to stop them once. If you can't, if they're getting second shots, it's over. So I, I see where you're coming from. I'm just more excited about the idea of Giannis at center, Middleton at, at four, and three guards. I know it's not as good defensively. I just think that opens up so much offensively, right? Like the Middleton Giannis pick and roll with that kind of spacing becomes so much more dangerous. And yes, Embiid is the single biggest mismatch for the Nets out there in the NBA. Giannis is not far behind. And if you mm -hmm. properly space the floor for him, like we saw this in the Sun series, he got to a level against Phoenix that we had never seen him get to. If he is that player against the Nets next year, 
that becomes a way more interesting series. I think psychologically, and I, Drew Holiday's been very open about it, P.J. Tucker, too, even after the Nets series and then after they won the title, they thought once they got past the Nets that they're like, okay, this is our time now. Like, I don't think they even believed in their minds that when they got matched up with the Nets in the second round that they were going to win that series. Uh, I just think they realized, like everyone else thought, the Nets are the super team. I mean, this is going to be a really tough series for us to win. And then they just got a couple fortunate breaks in their way. They played well. And they got past that series. And they were talking about how, gr- how much of a grind it was, how physical it was. They were all bumped and bruised. And um, somehow they made it to the conference finals and just felt like their year at that point. And I think Giannis, psychologically in his mind, he even said Kevin Durant's the best player in the world. But after he got past Kevin Durant, after he got to the conference finals, after he got to the finals and won the championship, I think that team, and as you said, they started to figure some things out about their offensive identity throughout that process. I think if they were a more confident team, they believe that they should be there. Um, and it was kind of that mental hurdle to get over the hump because the prior years they were getting out early against Toronto and Miami and then beating a team like the Nets, albeit shorthanded. I think it really was a mental switch for them that going to this season, they're going to feel like, OK, we're the championship favorites. They're going to have a champ. They're going to have a chip on their shoulder, too, with everyone talking about the Nets and the Lakers. And they're going to be like, hey, we're the favorites here. We beat you last year. And they're going to have more confidence going into a series in this playoffs. Oh, 100 percent. And the other thing I'll add. The Nets, given their injuries, it's really hard to say what we think they'll be for a regular season in a regular season setting. Like, if they're healthy, the Nets are a possible 70-win team. Like, we can just put that out there. I think, realistically, they're going to load manage, and they built this team to load manage. We can get into that in a little bit. But I don't think their priority is going to be being the best regular season team possible. I think the Bucks are going to be a monster regular season team. Because they don't have to spend as much time experimenting as they did last year. You know, they had some injuries last year, like Drew Holiday missing that time with COVID was like, I think they lost five games in a row in that span. Now they figured themselves out. They've gotten back all of the shooting that they'd lost when they were the best regular season team two, two years in a row. So I think there is a like meaningful chance that the Bucks have home court advantage in that series. And how many times did they lose at home in the playoffs last year? Was it once? It was that Atlanta game, right? I think they lost to Atlanta once. I don't think yeah. they lost. It was at home to they the didn't Nets, lose. So. Nope. Yeah. So that becomes a much more like I this offseason really sold me on home court advantage more than anything or this postseason. Rather, when the Bucks beat the Suns in game five, I felt like the finals were over at that point because home court advantage had just seemed so huge up until then. But I want to go back towards the Nets offseason moves, though. Essentially, what they did was they made two swaps of any real consequence. They chose Patty Mills over Jeff Green and they chose Javon Carter in a first round pick over Landry Shamit. I think the carter Shamit swap is ultimately going to be immaterial late in the playoffs. I like Javon Carter a lot, and I think he's better than Landry Shamit. And also just his toughness on a team with Bruce Brown. It's unfair. Why can't I have nice things? Like, why do the Nets get to have all these guys that I like? Mills for Green is a really interesting decision. I ultimately endorse it, but I think it makes them slightly worse in a playoff setting. Just because the real advantage of having Patty Mills is that he's James Harden and Kyrie Irving insurance in the regular season, right? I would also add one thing, which I think you might be looking past. Um, they don't play the exact same position, but they kind of do and how they would fluctu- they would perform in the Nets offense. I think he's Joe Harris insurance. If Joe Harris is well, that too, play- yeah. Yeah, if Joe Harris is another playoff stinker. I mean, Patty Mills can slide in there as, as another shooter, and he's more versatile offensively in terms of he can handle the ball and teams maybe can't play in the same way on defense. So I think he's someone that will help in that regard too. I think the Patty Mills move over Jeff Green was a smart one. I mean, Jeff Green's been a really good player for a long time, but he had a, an uptick in performance last year at the Nets, and he shot a little higher than most people would expect or expect. Him it's to a repeat. lot higher. 
Yeah, he shot so forty one point two percent from three last year. He was thirty two percent the five years before. Yeah, so there might be two factors there. One, playing off the Nets stars, he's getting so many open looks. Um, and two, it could have just been a fluke year. So I think the Nets valued him at a minimum, um, considering what they can get for the mid level guy like Patty Mills. And I agree with them. I, I said all along I would not have given him more than the minimum. He was an important player, and they'll miss him. Um, but they're getting a guy like James Johnson, who I think is going to fill that role some. They'll expect some more contributions from Nick Claxton, getting a year older here and maturing, and he'll be important for the season. They retain Bruce Brown. I'd allow them to go a little smaller at points. Um, so, I mean, James Johnson is going to be the main guy that fills that role for now until they add buyout guys or whatever. But, but, I mean, he's an upgrade on rebounding. He's an upgrade on defense in Jeff, Jeff Green. Um, he's not nearly the same shooter or offensive player. Um, but I think they're going to be creative with him and use him as a short roller. He's a good playmaker, and I think he's even a little better as a playmaker than Jeff Green. So um, I think it'll be interesting to see how they fit him in. And who knows? him? He's a guy that, next to all these stars and all this spacing, he might be a guy that could um, really fit into a nice role. So ultimately, I think Patty Mills is a big-time shot maker in big games, and that, that's an upgrade in some respects there. Well, here's the other elephant in the room. If the Nets want to make a major trade addition, not major, but like, a starting level player, they can do it. They have this $11.5 million trade exception from Spencer Dinwiddie. They also have DeAndre Jordan, who to this point, they seem unwilling to trade. The question becomes, when you get to the middle of February and you're looking at this and saying, like, we can get Larry Nance, but it's going to cost us $80 million in salary and taxes, or we can trade DeAndre Jordan to get Larry Nance, but it's going to bother the stars. Maybe it's not Larry Nance. Maybe it's somebody else like that. But like, if they wanted to go get a real Jeff Green replacement for the minimum, they have the tools to do it. They have a tradable first-round pick in 2028. They have the salary means to do it. The question is, do you think they are going to think that way? Are they willing to ultimately trade DeAndre? Are they willing to take that huge plunge from a tax perspective? Or is the team we see now ultimately the team we're going to get in the playoffs? Yeah, so there's been kind of mixed reports on that. One Nets reporter, um, excuse my name exactly which one it was at the moment, he reported something that the Nets were unwilling to move DeAndre Jordan. And that came out late in the offseason after we've been hearing the entire time that the Nets were shopping DeAndre Jordan in every way possible. So to me, that sounds like his source might be the Nets organization, whereas the other is league sources, you know? And the Nets organization, realizing DeAndre is an important figure in that locker room, after canvassing the league and realizing after the draft and the early portion of free agency that they couldn't find a match for DeAndre Jordan Trey, and they're going to have to reincorporate him to the roster, um, they probably want to smooth things over there and make an act like, you know what, DJ's an important guy here. We don't want to lose him. Um, so I think it was more of that than the Nets not being willing to trade DeAndre Jordan. I do think Katie and Kyrie think he's an important guy in that locker room, but I don't think it's off limits they get rid of him. Interestingly enough, the other day, Alex Schiffer, the athletic who covers the Nets, um, he said, I don't think it was a report, but he was saying in his mailbag that he does not expect DeAndre to be on the team by the time training camp rolls around. So that's stuff he's been hearing. I don't think he sourced it really, but he just that's the general feel that he has. So I think the door's still very much open on DeAndre not being a part of this team. And I think they're waiting on Marcus Aldridge and see what happens with Kevin Love and uh, Paul Millsap maybe. I mean, there's a lot of guys still out there that can potentially replace DeAndre Jordan. And back to your original question, I don't think the Nets are looking to add a whole lot more salary. I don't think there's a hard line from Josai. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't think they feel they need to. Um, I think the TPE, I, I would be surprised they used the whole portion of it. Maybe they'll use it to acquire a 3 to $5 million player around the deadline um, with a couple second-round picks. I could see that. But I don't really see another $10 million-plus player coming in here. I don't think they're swapping Jordan necessarily for him. I could see Jordan getting... 
um, waived. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't think they're going to add a big money piece. And I think a lot of times, most times, trade exceptions don't get used by teams. And it's a nice way to kind of get something back, sell to your fan base that we didn't trade them for nothing. But people forget about that in the long term. And I think the Nets feel like they have the roster here that they need. They're going to be able to get, get minimum buyout guys like a Kevin Love, potentially. Um, guys that are worth more than the minimum that, that can give you more than a minimum player would. So I think that kind of offsets the need to pay more for uh, another player in the trade market. And it will require picks, as you mentioned. They don't have a pick to trade till 2028, which is a long time away. Do they want to move that one? Um, they had four, four, excuse me, uh, three second round picks in this last draft. So that would have been a nice time to trade for a veteran or whatever. But now they only really have one, sometimes two per year over the next couple of years. So they don't have as many second rounders to trade. Um, so I, I don't really think they're going to use that full portion of the TPE, potentially maybe a couple million of it. Yeah, I think I probably agree. The numbers here right now, they're around 306 million in salary plus taxes. If they use the entire TPE, they get up to almost 387 million, which is an insane amount to ask any owner to pay. Now golden state is doing it, but they're also in the repeater tax. So they kind of don't have a choice. Um, if they were going to use the trade exception, I think the way to do it would be trade first round pick in 2028 plus well, using the trade exception to absorb a salary, bring that guy in and then separately give up some second rounders to send DeAndre Jordan to Oklahoma City just because they have the trade exceptions and the cap space to take him in. I don't think a team that's trading a good player wants to take in DeAndre, but ultimately I, I agree. I think they're focused on buyouts. LaMarcus Aldridge made a genuine difference for them last year. I don't know if he's going to play or not. We'll see. I don't think Kevin Love moves the needle. Do you really, like, are you excited about adding Kevin Love, if that's what it is? I don't think anyone, even Aldridge, really moves the needle at this point. I, I think the Nets are the favorites, and if you add Aldridge, does it make even a game difference in the finals? I'm not sure. And Aldridge being a more of a stiff center, especially at this point of his career, I'm not sure how much he can play in a in certain matchups late in the postseason. But I do think adding depth to, to the big men, which is what the Nets, I guess, only weakness maybe would be is – I think that always helps. And you get proven veteran performers that if a Nick Claxton, I mean, he fell out of the rotation in the playoffs. A lot of that was matchup based and need, given that the Nets were without offensive creators and spacing around KD. Um, but he's not even a guy that I don't think we could say at this point is a proven playoff rotation player. I mean, I expect him to be a rotation player this year, but I mean, the, there's still some to be proven there. So, um, and then outside of Blake, who do they really have? They lost Jeff Green. James Johnson's not as good of a player. Hopefully he fills a role, but. Um, if he wasn't on the team in the second half of the year, would that surprise me? No, that's not my expectation, but I don't think he's necessarily locked in here as a guy that you definitely trust in the playoffs. So I think there are rotation spots that we had here, um, especially in the front court. So, um, my philosophy, again, take the talent in, work him into the system. A lot of people didn't think Blake had much left and look at him. He was very impressive against guarding Giannis and, um, offensively he was even good as well, starting and by the end of the playoffs and, uh, I mean, he was arguably the Nets' second best player in the in the Bucks series, given Harden and Kyrie's injuries. So, I think you take these guys in, these veterans, and you let Steve Nash try and figure it out. And they're going for a championship. They have big game experience, and I think that's valuable. I think the value of Claxton is not necessarily against the Lakers or the Bucks. I think you want him against elite shooting teams. So, like, say this is a good segue into one of the teams that I think is a trade away from getting into this conversation is the Warriors where if they trade Moody and Kaminga and Wiseman and Wiggins and they get Bradley Beal, suddenly the Warriors are right in the thick of things. Plaxton is a lot more impactful in a series like that 
where a big man that can switch onto the perimeter is at a premium versus against the Lakers or the Bucks, where you want your big men to be protecting the rim. So ultimately, I think that's the right segue here. The Warriors right now, we probably agree, are not a threat to the Nets, right? It has to be a Beal or Lillard trade. Even if they get Beal or Lillard, I'm not sure they can knock the Nets off. I guess I guess it would be uh, more of a more of a series, though. Really? So you think even with all four? Like my thought on this is, at that point, like the Nets have like the Nets are better defensively than they've gotten credit for, but. That, that series is, like, ultimately about outscoring them. If you're going to beat them, it's because you're able to outscore them. The Warriors with Beal are one of the few teams that could actually do it. I think it would force some of their def- defenders out of their comfort zone, right? Like, Harden would have a harder time staying in the post against a team with Beal, Curry, and Thompson than he would against, say, the Bucks or the Lakers. So I think there's some matchup issues there. And if you want to talk about their defense then, like, they have Draymond. They have an all-time defender on their team, and the Nets don't. So that is a real advantage for them defensively. But, like, my God, Curry defending Kyrie or Harden, Beal defending Kyrie or Harden, and those guys defending them, like, that's a series that every game is going to be in the 130s or the 140s. Yeah, uh, that's true. I mean, I think when you look at it, Harden is, I guess, around the same level as Curry. Kyrie is a little better than, I think, Beal and Clay, right? I think we could both agree on that. And Kyrie, we've seen, especially against Steph. I mean, in all these finals matchups, he's always played at the Steph's level. He's another guy that has that irrational confidence. Maybe something rational sometimes. He, he had a big shot over Curry in the finals, but he thinks he's as good as Steph, in my opinion. Um, so, I mean, that would be there. But I think the ultimate trump card, you, Nets have KD and Harden, in my opinion, two top five players. The Warriors would have one. They'd have Steph. Beal and Clay are great players, but they're not on that level. And you're bringing up Draymond, obviously, he's an impact player. But I think ultimately... We still have someone like Blake, they have someone like Joe Harris, Patty Mills. I mean, I th- I just like the, the the core of eight deep that the Nets have and, and their veteran talent and their experience better than what the Warriors have. And I think ultimately KD would be the trump card, just as he was the trump card for the Warriors when he went to Golden State years back. Yeah, that's a matchup issue for them because, like, Draymond is obviously a very good defender, but you've not stick him on the best player on the other team especially if that guy's more perimeter-oriented, yeah. like, he'll be a stopper. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. He, would, he would have to guard KD straight up in that series, and, like, I don't know how that would go. I would be like, this is Draymond we're talking about. Like, I think he would do an okay job, but an okay job doesn't do... Like, just how many guys think, in the NBA would you think, like, could defend Durant very well in the finals? It's like Kawhi, Anthony Davis... Um, Maybe Jimmy Butler. Like, it's a pretty short list. Like, who are the guys you'd be afraid of defending Durant, just regardless of their teams? I don't think any, I'm afraid of anyone guarding him. I mean, I think the guys you mentioned could be make it more difficult. But I think as we saw with a great defender like P.J. Tucker, even Giannis when he switched on KD, I think KD could still get his. So, And with you have Harden and Kyrie there, he's not relied upon to do everything. So I think he could be efficient enough and pick his spots um, where it wouldn't ultimately matter. But back to the Warriors matchup, I think their best – chance of beating the Nets would be Otto Porter Jr. having a good season. And let's say they have Beal, because uh, I don't think they're getting Lillard, but let's say they had Beal and they go with Curry, Beal, Thompson, Otto Porter Jr. and Draymond. Otto Porter Jr. guards KD, does the best he can in one-on-one. They shade the floor a little bit towards KD when they can. Draymond's more of your off-ball defender, kind of quarterback of your defense like he is. He'll primarily guard Blake, but on switches with Harden and Kyrie, he could switch off and you're still... Um, a solid defensive team there. And then Curry and Beal, I mean, you're going to have to just figure it out and 
I think Curry has to, I mean, what are you going to do? I think you have to put Clay on Harden, right? And then so that means Curry has to guard Kyrie, which he never really did in any of those finals matches. Clay mostly guarded Kyrie. Um, so, so, I mean, maybe you put Bradley Beal on Kyrie, even though Bradley Beal, I think he has the physical stature to be a good defender, but he's just been an atrocious defender statistically over the last few years. Uh, it's interesting. I just don't think any team besides the Lakers has the top end talent that the Nets have, mainly when you look at KD and Harden of two top five players. I think the Lakers can, if AD's playing really well and LeBron's healthy, they can match that. And then I think Westbrook in the right scenario can raise his level enough um, to compete and give you enough of what Kyrie can give you. And then you got all these veteran pieces that um, are experienced and, and, and that sort. So I think the Warriors are a really good team. They're a really fun team. I'm excited to have them back in the title picture, but I, I just don't think that um, the two guys that are available and the two stars they can get, Beal or Lillard potentially, I don't think they, they fit what they would need for a net series. Like they don't need another 6-3 guard um, to play against the Nets. So uh, that's just my opinion on it. You want to talk about those guys fitting onto a contender? Do I have the contender for you? What about the Philadelphia 76ers? I think we'd agree right now with Ben Simmons, they're not really a threat to the Nets. But what if they trade Simmons for Lillard or Beal? Beal, I don't think, does it. I think Lillard would make it a series that could go seven. I still say that the Nets have the edge because the Nets would have three stars, and I don't think Tobias Harris competes with Kyrie. Um, and I think KD and Harden are both better than Embiid and Lillard. Um, again, I think KD would kind of be a trump card in that series. But when you think about how Embiid and Lillard would fit, and you talk about teams that need to – have a, a big that can get out there and, and, and stretch out and switch either onto Lillard, Lillard excuse me, or um, trap the ball or hedge hard. Like, that's, that's what you have to do on Damian Lillard. And then Embiid's just rolling to the rim, and you're in rotation against the biggest, most dominant force in the league. So, I mean, that would be a really difficult team with Seth, Seth Curry coming over on, on the wing to, for a wide-open three against the rotating defense. I mean, that would be a really difficult team, and I've said – as I said earlier in this podcast, Embiid scares me more than any other player in an individual matchup for the Nets. Um, and it's been that way since I saw him destroy Jared Allen and the Nets a few years back in the playoffs. And the Nets still don't have an answer for him. They tried DeAndre Jordan. He competed physically for a little bit, but Embiid literally scores on anyone. So I don't even blame DeAndre Jordan. Um, and also the Nets aren't at their best on the other end with DeAndre Jordan. So um, and he wouldn't be able to play against Damian Lillard. So. Um, it's tough. It, it, a lot of teams really wouldn't have the versatile bigs to to be able to both defend Lillard on a switch or on the perimeter and also have someone strong enough to defend and be down low. So that would be a matchup nightmare for the Nets. I do think ultimately they have enough talent that they would probably win that series in, in, in six or seven. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned Harden and Durant being better than Embiid. I think in a vacuum, that's a fair thing to say. I'd probably take Embiid over Harden, but that's subjective. In the context of that series, where the Nets just have no answer for Embiid whatsoever, I think Embiid would end up probably having the best series out of anybody, depending on how they went about defending Durant, right? Like, if Simmons is gone, what are you putting... I mean, I don't know if Thibault would be in that trade or not, but, like, is also better suited for defending the guards. Is Harris defending Durant? Like, that doesn't seem great to me. But ultimately, like, yeah. I just... You I have no have clue. guys, yeah. Right. I, I have no clue what the Nets would do against Embiid. And I mean, it's a shame that they combusted in the way that they did last year, because ultimately the Nets probably would have beaten them if they were at full strength and so were the Sixers. But I want to see how they approach such a mismatch. The only other player in the NBA that has the potential to be that kind of mismatch for them 
Well, Jokic, but that's another conversation. We'll get to that. Yeah, is Anthony Davis. Davis. Well, I'm telling you, because Jokic is big, but Jokic doesn't really back down guys all the way to the post. He's, he's strong. Don't get me wrong. But he's more of a, a skilled big that likes to face up and play with his, his, his body facing the basket, whereas Embiid is literally, he realizes he's the biggest player on the court. He's going to impose his will. He has that mindset on you. Jokic is in the same way, and the Nets have always matched up well with Jokic over the last couple of years. They've actually beaten the Nuggets. Yeah, I, just, I don't know off the top of my head, but I would say most matchups over the last maybe three years. Um, he doesn't scare me nearly as much. Embiid, he is the guy that realizes just how strong he is, and he really wants to bring the, the pain. So uh, Embiid scares me a lot more in that regard. And Anthony Davis veers more towards the po- the face-up side than the post-up side. Um, and for that reason, like, I think he'll be able to bully whoever he, the Nets put on him. But so much of what made him successful in the 2020 playoff run was that he was just shooting, like, Kevin Durant from mid-range and from behind the arc. I don't know if that's sustainable. And, like, Embiid doesn't need to hit his jumpers to be to kill the Nets, right? Like, it would help. And he obviously improved a lot as a shooter last year, especially in mid-range. But, like, if he needs to just go to the basket 25 times, he'll do it. I don't know if if Davis is going to be able to do that. Every jumper that Embiid takes, uh, watching him from a Nets perspective, like, that's a win for the Nets. Because they can, every time he goes in the paint, someone's either getting a foul on them or he's putting in the hoop. So, um, he's that good. I think the Nets' best option, they kind of realized later in their last uh, matchup against the Sixers, um, and I think it would have carried over into the playoffs and as they realized the identity of their roster. So as currently constructed, I think they would probably try and front with Blake, um, just be a pest, be physical. Blake can do that. Um, and then just have someone rotate from the corner and just try and rely on a really um, experienced veteran team that's really good at communicating, which the Nets actually got really good in that regard defensively in terms of switching off everything, um, just really communicating more so than waiting for a screen. So um, I think the Nets could do that, and they just try and force Embiid to be a passer, trap him the second he catches it. And a lot of teams don't play Embiid that way, and we've seen in the past a little bit when teams do that. Um, he's not the passer that Jokic is, so you you can maybe I think it might be your best way to defend him. But if you do add a guy like Lillard, obviously the floor is spaced more, and that's a little more difficult to do. But with Simmons, I think that would be the Nets' philosophy. Yeah, I think the underrated part of of Brooklyn's defense specifically is. They are so good at defending the nail. They are so good at, like, if you are near the basket but not right there, they're going to poke and they're going to generate turnovers and they're going to get, like, physical with you in the quiet ways that the refs don't see. That, I think, is an underrated factor against Zemeet, especially because, like, he can get a little turnover prone. He's not the worst, obviously. But, like, I think he's somebody that you can get frustrated. Like, Bruce Brown would end up getting, like, one or two really big steals near the free-throw line per game, and I think it would drive him beat crazy. Oh, even even Harden and Kyrie. I mean, a lot of people could criticize their defense, but they're both um, good at getting steals, especially Harden. Um, and Harden's very savvy in that way, where um, I think he, he'll see a ball exposed from Embiid. He's not looking at him. He'll strip it, and he'll get frustrated in that way. So I, I agree with that, you in that regard. But um, kind of just thinking about this and all these matchups in my head, this is such a fresh year. For a lot of teams in the NBA, but especially the Nets, really, because we haven't seen that big three play a lot of these teams. Like, we've never seen the Nets' big three at full strength go up against the Sixers. It just didn't happen last year. We saw it in the against the Bucks, obviously, a couple of times. We haven't seen a Lakers-Nets full strength matchup. Um, so a lot of these big-time matchups we haven't seen. So it's going to be a really fun experience once, once the season rolls around. Yeah, my last thought on Philly is the Lakers tried Danny Green one-on-one against James Harden for a minute, and it did not work. So that's another slight concern is the team with Danny Green as their primary perimeter defender 
had to double James Harden relentlessly. So that's another issue. But I, I would favor the Nets. But you're right. I think Philly with Beal or Lillard gets pretty close. The next three teams, maybe one of them I'd feel kind of comfortable with. But ultimately, these are the teams that need to get healthy if they're going to have a chance against the Nets. I'll give you three and just key in on the one that you're most interested in. Miami with Victor Oladipo, Denver with Jamal Murray, the Clippers with Kawhi Leonard. Of those three, do any stand out? I think the clip uh, you mentioned earlier that the Lakers, if the Nets had been stayed hurt and the Lakers were healthy, they would have won the title. I thought that most of the regular season, but the way the season ended with LeBron and AD being in and out of the lineup, and it just didn't seem like they had their rhythm, the Lakers. I think that even if they got past Phoenix, if the Clippers had stayed healthy with Kawhi, that they would have beaten them in, in the conference finals. Or I think they would have matched them in the conference finals. But I, I think the Clippers, they kind of found themselves a little bit last year, too. Paul George, him kind of finding himself, I think that was big for that team. Um, so I think the Clippers, again, they have the top-end talent to match a Nets team. I think Kawhi and PG, they can, they can give you that output. So I would lean Clippers, although I'm very high on the Nuggets. I think Michael Porter Jr.'s my favorite to win most improved player this year as with a lot of people he is um i think he's going to make a leap to 23 to 25 points per game especially without jamal murray in the early portion of the year potentially make an all-star team um, i'm that high on him um if they do get jamal murray back i mean that's a dangerous team so i think denver is i guess that next best team and then i think miami and i want to sell them short putting them third i just think of the three teams you gave me they're the third one i think they would give a really tough series to the nets if the nets happen to be hurt that's a team that can capitalize similar to Milwaukee. I think they're a very similar level team to what Milwaukee was last year. Um, similar grinded out physical style. So I, I, that's kind of how I'd rank it. If you ask me right now, I'd say if all teams are fully healthy, you're saying Murray's back, Leonard's back, I'd say Nets and six over the Heat. I would say Nets and six over the Nuggets. And I think the Clippers can get it maybe to seven. So maybe I'd say Nets and seven over the Clippers. But um, I ultimately think that it's Lakers, Bucks. Clippers with Kawhi, those are your top three teams. I really don't think anyone else um, can beat the Nets, personally. I think the problem the Clippers would encounter is they cannot play the style that they want to play against the Lakers. Anthony Davis would eat Nick Batum alive. So I think the Clippers last year, the best version of them was better than the best version of the Lakers, but the matchups would have been so problematic that I ultimately think the Lakers would have come out of that. But I see where you're coming from. The way that the Nets play, or rather the way that the Clippers play with Nick Batum at center, is the most interesting matchup for the Nets. But they, the thing is, they switched to that, though, when they played Gobert, and because Ibaka was hurt, and they had some injuries in the front court. So I don't think that's their long-term style. That's not how they played most of the year. Um, no, but that's, that's just be, like the, the Warriors don't use the death lineup 82 games, right? They know it's their best lineup, and they can go to it when they need to. I guess that's true. I, I think, in a, I don't know, I think the Lakers would have to downsize, obviously, to play the Clippers. AD's your, your five. And I think Kawhi is a strong enough center of gravity that he can guard AD if he needs to. PG guards LeBron. And I think it can work well enough there. And then you're forcing LeBron and AD potentially to guard Kawhi and PG. I think it'll be a fun matchup. But um, I don't know. I think I think the Clippers, their shot making would give the, the Lakers a lot of difficulty, similar to the Nets, but to a lesser level. Um, that offensively, they're going to have to keep up with a team that can shoot it and space it. I mean, the Clippers were an all-time great offensive team last year as well. The real development that I don't think people talked about enough last year was that Nick Batum as a small ball center, as a help defender, was like maybe sub-Draymond level 
But other than that, like we have not seen many small ball fives play as good defensively as he did in the Dallas series and in parts of the Utah series. Like, my God, he was so incredible. I don't think that makes sense against the Lakers. I think Anthony Davis would just post him up. But I think against the Nets, that would be really, really impactful. My real question is, who closes that series for the Clippers? I think we know four of the names. It would be Kawhi, Paul George, Marcus Morris, and Nick Batum. But are you relying on Terrence Mann to be the fifth guy? Do you think Reggie Jackson can hold up defensively? Like, this is one of the reasons I dislike the Eric Bledsoe trade for them. I think it makes sense in the regular season when you just really need extra ball handling while you're waiting for Kawhi to come back. In the playoffs, there's no question. Patrick Beverly's a better fit. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I think Reggie Jackson was really impressive in the last playoffs. We'll see if he repeats his performance this year. But I think he really kind of carved out a, a role for him that he's their, their third or at least fourth offensive option. So I think he'd probably be out there with that group. I don't think it's a guarantee Batum would be out there um, necessarily, but he, he probably would. And if you go back, the Nets actually had their fully healthy big three against a fully healthy Clippers team just about. Um, at one point in the season, the game was in Brooklyn, and that was one of the better game regular season games of the year. Went down to the wire. Um, and if you want to go back and look at it, I don't know if you remember off the top of your head, KD, Harden, and Kyrie. It was early on when Harden had just first got there. It wasn't uh, too far into it. Um, and they were just taking turns, getting Batum on switches and taking advantage of him. I mean, Batum's a really good, versatile defender, especially when you play him at the five where he's not up, needs, doesn't need to be a primary defender for, for a wing elite wing guy. Um, but but the Nets were just taking turns, teeing off in Batum, realizing with all the great defenders on the floor, with Kawhi, uh, PG, even Marcus Morris, I mean, he w- was the weak link technically. And the Nets were just seeking that out and, and just taking advantage of it. So I think the versatility of Batum is nice. He's a guy I wanted for the Nets last year. I thought he'd bounce back. Again, I trust these veterans that are in bad situations that they're going to come to a team like the Nets or the Lakers or the Clippers and, and find themselves and be playing for something that they're going to play well. Um, but I think ultimately it's just, I think to really summarize it, no team matches the talent of the Nets, um, besides potentially the Lakers, if they catch lightning in the bottle and they have a really good series, um, to, to knock them off. And I, I strongly believe in talent and, and that's just my philosophy on it. Yeah. Batum is not a great man defender at this point. It's all help defense for him. So him playing five is very, very important for the Clippers. Him at the four with like Zubac at the five. I don't think that makes any sense against the Nets. Denver, it's just really a question of how good their defense would be, right? And it was a very small sample. But when they had Aaron Gordon and Jamal Murray was still healthy, they were in the 100th percentile in offense. 128 points per 100 possessions. It's a tiny sample. But the more important development for them was with Gordon, that starting five allowed 111.2 points per possession. 70th percentile. Like, that's not great. But when you're that good on offense, I think you've put yourself within the margin of error, right? Where if you shoot as well as you can shoot, maybe the variance works out that you can beat the Nets. But I would certainly pick the Nets in that series because they would just they would torture Jokic on defense. Yeah, no, quick, quickly to rattle off just to get your take here. So I'm going I'm to name a couple of the teams here. I'm putting you on the hot seat here. And you just Please. tell me, top of your head, what would your pick be Nets versus them? How many games? So okay. you got the heat. What do you say? Nets versus Heat. Honestly, Nets in five. Like, maybe if Victor Oladipo is back to 100%, they could, you know, be tough and annoying enough that, okay, you defend them well. Maybe they have an off-shooting night. You can get to six. But, like, I just look – my the big thing I look at with the Nets is 
they're always going to have somebody they can pick on, right? I don't look at a team except maybe the Bucks that will have enough defense to where Harden and Kyrie can't just isolate against whoever the worst defender is and torture them. And with Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero playing major minutes, I just think like they're gonna they're just gonna struggle to get stops. Well, that's and why if Victor yeah. Oladipo is a guy that can kind of get healthy and give him a little more than he gave him at least last year. He's a guy that can maybe play that two guard spot, sacrifice maybe a little bit of shooting to get a guy that can't be picked on as easily defensively. That could be but a big problem for them. Here's the problem with that: they are so reliant on Duncan Robinson for spacing. If you are playing Oladipo, Butler, Bam, and Tucker at the same time, your defense is going to be incredible. I don't know how you're going to space the floor properly. You're basically at that point relying on just Kyle Lowry and Jimmy Butler to create shots for you because. I really, the spacing there is just, I don't think that would be enough. I think Bam has another level to go as a spacer. Right? I think he showed last year he has a pretty solid mid-range jumper. I think he could space out even more, but I, I agree. That could be a concern. Um, but Butler's still a really good player, regardless if he has a three-point shot. So, yeah, I, I said Nets in six, but I'm pretty much on the same path with you. Let's go Nets Nuggets. I said Nets in six. With Murray, Nets in six yeah. seems right to me. Um, okay. I, I think there's upside awesome. there, though. I do think there's upside. Like, I think if everything breaks right, I see scenarios where the Nuggets could win that series. But my guess would be Nuggets and or Nets and six. Yes, uh, Nets against Clippers with Kawhi. Man, I want the Clippers to make an in-season move. I just do not get the Bledsoe thing for them. Like, if they had Beverly, now you'd be talking about like a seven-game war where I really like I'd probably pick the Nets, but I wouldn't feel comfortable naming a winner with Bledsoe. I'm still, I'm going to say Nets in six. Um, I don't know. Like maybe Terrence Mann makes a leap. Maybe they add another really good minimum on the buyout market, but I just don't think they can match Brooklyn shot creation. Okay. Uh, Sixers and Bucks. What do you got for each of those? I'm going to say Bucks seven. Man, you know, I don't want to say Bucks and se- or Bucks seven actually, because I think they'd, they're the only team I think will have home court advantage in that series. So I guess I kind of have to say Nets in six. Because I don't want to pick a home team to lose a game seven, but the Bucks are probably at the top of my list right now. Um, Sixers, if they get Lillard, man, maybe they get it to seven. Um, yeah, you know, I do think the Sixers with Lillard are more of an issue for the Nets than the Bucks because they're the team that combines Milwaukee's inter- interior presence yep. with sort of shot creation yeah. that you really yeah, no. need. If the, if the Sixers got Lillard, they would have. The the, the, the the third best duo in the league behind the Nets and Lakers, I would say. Um, and so from a talent standpoint, where we talk about talent, they're, they're stacking up to the Nets as well as anyone just about. Uh, and then you talk about the, the physical mismatch. That's what they got in Embiid there. So I, I do think the Sixers would be the toughest team um, if, if they if they if they got um, if they got Lillard, maybe even more tough than the Lakers. Who knows? Yeah, I just I mean, I think there are scenarios where the Lakers beat the Nets like it's not a lock or anything. I just have so many questions about the defense and so many questions about the offensive fit that I'm just skeptical on it. Now, let me turn this around on you. Here's another hypothetical. Let's say the Lakers trade for Kyle Lowry at last year's deadline, and they have Lowry instead of Westbrook. How does that change your perception of that series? I think I'm more confident that the Lakers can take it Definitely six. I'm more confident that it goes at least six. I'm like I could e- more easily predict the series. Westbrook makes it a little more unpredictable, but I think the ceiling of the Lakers is a bit higher, uh, if that makes sense. See, I go the other way. Like I have 
gone down the rabbit hole with, you know, the Charlie Day newspapers and pins and Pepe Silvia thing. I am convinced that if the Lakers had traded for Kyle Lowry at the deadline, they also would have traded for Buddy Heald. And now you'd be talking about a team with LeBron, AD, another high-level playmaker who's also a good defender and just elite shooting around them. That well, I if think you say that, if you say that, yeah, if you if that's the pick, well, they're going to get both of them, then no, yeah. Let me explain this because I think it's fairly straightforward. The the trade for Lowry would have been Talon Horton Tucker, Dennis Schroeder, and KCP. The Lakers still would have had Kuzma and Harrell at that point. There's no reason they couldn't have just turned them into Buddy Heald. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so that was that's my conspiracy. Maybe they have Caruso, maybe they don't, but like I think quietly there are just going to be a lot of teams that regret not going harder for Lowry at the deadline. Like, imagine if Philly had Lowry right now and they could keep Ben Simmons. Like, that, mm-hmm. I think, if, if they had traded for Lowry at the deadline, like, honestly, I think there's a good chance they win the championship last yeah. year. I'm a bit puzzled by everything that went on with Lowry at the deadline and in this free agency, too. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I felt like he would want to push his way to Philly or even the Lakers, just find a way to get to one of those two spots more than Miami, but... He ran right there in Miami. Listen, they're a great organization. I'm sure he loves being down in Miami. He gets a big money deal. It's a good fit for him. But I just, I mean, I guess he has that one title. But I felt like he'd maybe want to go home to Philly and try and put that team over the hump, a team that was better than Miami or, or the Lakers. So, um, and then at the deadline, Masai Ujiri, one of the best general managers in the league. I'm not sure what he was doing there. Um, I don't even think the offer that the Lakers had was that great for him, honestly. I, 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 we have to talk about Taylor Horton Tucker. And kind of Nick Claxing, because I think there's a little bit of a parallel between the two of them of how they could swing the Nets and the Lakers seasons and make them really good teams into being very, very good teams and just fitting into those lineups. So um, I, th- I think well, there's a, I think there's a little bit of overrating in both fan bases of the players yes. um, and maybe a little bit too much reliance on each player at this point from what they've shown. But I at least understand the fit of Nick Claxton. Like, I know how he works with that big three in Brooklyn. I don't know how Taylor Horton Tucker fits with LeBron Westbrook because the thing that Taylor Horton Tucker does so well is get to the basket for the yeah. rim. Yep. But if you have Westbrook and LeBron, that's just not something you need. You need guys who are going to space the floor for them and make it easier for them to do that. That's not Taylor Horton Tucker right now. I'm, if I'm, he's an average three-point shooter, we're having another conversation, but right now yeah. it's not. Yeah, if he could be an average three-point shooter, what the interesting thing about him is that in a potential net series where you have all these guys that they have to defend. And you mentioned Malik Monk will get picked on Kendrick Nunn, potentially um, Wayne Ellington, all these guys, Horton Tucker will be able to stay in there a little bit better defensively. So, I mean, if he can give you um, average floor spacing at least, which I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that he makes that leap this year. Um, Cause he's not a complete loss cause on that end. Um, I do think he's someone that could be, be a fit. And then the same thing with the nets. I mean, they're thin up front. They have Blake Griffin. Who knows if he takes a step back, getting a year older. Maybe he's more injured this year. Um, Claxton taking a leap would be huge. And in terms of a physical profile, he matches up best with an Anthony Davis in terms of being a long athletic um, near seven footer. So I think both of those guys uh, can really kind of swing what the, the Nets Lakers potential matchup looks like. But I do think both are being overrated at this point by their fan base and from what they've shown. I think it's a case of Two contending teams without a lot of young talent at this point. I mean, the Nets added Cam Thomas now, and everyone loves Cam Thomas. But um, without like, previously before this year, two teams that really only had those two guys as the young players. And fans love homegrown young players, and they love to dream on them. So I think fans got attached to these two guys in each of the respective fan bases. And um, it's been a little bit of that so far. I think I need to see a little bit more from each of them to, to, to really agree with where the, I feel like the, the, the natural consensus is about them. Well, Lakers Twitter is 
given me no end of grief for this, but I just think the real value Taylor Horton Tucker brings to the Lakers it he has, is that he has a value contract that pays him $9.4 million this year. Mm-hmm. If they're going to make an in-season trade, like for somebody of any substance, there's a good chance that he's going to be in it. And like, I know I hate to keep going back to Buddy Healed, but like if they were going to get Buddy Healed, like Horton Tucker is the guy that the Kings would want, right? Like they wanted Kuzma. Luke Walton loves Kyle Kuzma. And I think he's just maybe alone in that front. But like if if the Kings are going to try to get off that Buddy Healed contract, I don't know what the other destination is, right? Like, I don't know who Philly's matching salary is. I don't know what New Orleans sends out. Like, I think there would be teams that are interested in Buddy Heald, but like, the obvious trade that's staring these teams in the face is Taylor Horton Tucker, Kendrick Nunn, and Marcus Saul plus one other minimum guy for matching salary for Buddy Heald. I don't think it's going to happen, but like, I will never stop clinging to that dream because if the Lakers add Buddy to their trio, like, now the offense makes sense. Now I don't have any yeah, reason. To ask you, what's your feel on the Gasol situation? Because I've heard kind of mixed reports. We know he was kind of unhappy last year. This year we thought everything would be okay now, but then I heard a report, I don't know how true it was, that he might not be on the team or whatever. I mean, is he sticking around there? Do you expect him to be on the team late in the season? Because if not, he could be a nice big body guy for the Nets, personally, if he got bought out. I don't think the Lakers would buy him out. I think if he were going to leave the Lakers, it would be through a trade. Mark is a very prideful guy, and I think the thing that happened with Drummond, where Drummond just comes in and takes his starting job, that really bothered Mark because, frankly, it was unwarranted, right? And we were talking about this at the time. When the Lakers had Anthony Davis and Mark Gasol starting together, they were world beaters. They were crushing everybody. And I think Mark looked at this and said, like, you're essentially blaming me for Anthony Davis's injury, and you're taking me out of the rotation for this guy who, you know, has not been here all year and, frankly, is not as good as me. I think that was really damaging to his pride. And I think he's hearing all of these rumors now about Anthony Davis starting at center, and he's wondering, like, if Davis is starting at center and we just signed Dwight, who the organization loves to death and the fans love to death and, like, is probably going to play 15 minutes, 20 minutes a game, where does that leave me? I think more than anything, he wants some assurances on his role. So I personally think he should start. I think if the, the best lineup for the Lakers to start games with would be Gasol at center and Ken Bazemore at shooting guard. You close with Davis at center, but... I think more than anything, he just wants assurances that he's not going to be stuck on the bench all year. Because if he is, then, like, at that point, he's made his money. Like, why wouldn't he just retire to Spain or go play for Barcelona or something? No, I understand that. If he does get traded, though, like, say he was matching salary. And by the way, the Lakers only have five players on their roster right now making more than the minimum. Gasol is making the minimum, but he got a two-year minimum, so you count it for $2.6 million instead of the $1.6 million figure. So... He is important as matching salary if they're going to make any trade in season. That's why I don't think they'll yeah, trade him. But if he does get traded, I don't think they'll buy him out. Yeah, if he does get traded somewhere like a Sacramento, he's getting bought yeah, out. Yeah, he of gets either. bought out. And so, by the way, the Nets would love him. Steve Nash would love Marcus All. He is not the same defender that he used to be. Like just to be absolutely clear, Phoenix was roasting him in pick and roll, but his passing is so valuable and so underrated. Mm-hmm. And the issue with the shooting, he's a very good shooter. He just doesn't like to shoot. So he's constantly wide open and like looking he's a around. Pass for God. Yeah. yeah, right. But I don't think that's an issue for the Nets because, no. like, man, can you imagine him passing that talent? Like, Jesus. I mean, I mean, with DeAndre's kind of decline and just the league changing, um, they could use a guy that could kind of be a, a drop center, and he's obviously more skilled as an offensive player. He could space the floor, and I mean, it's rare to find a center that can be a floor spacer and also a drop big. 
Um, it still provides some sort of rim protection. So, I mean, he's unique in that regard, and I think he'd definitely be a fit for the Nets. So that's another thing the Lakers have to consider. If they trade him somewhere, he could end up on a contender that they're going up against. So um, that's another thing to think about. I think if you're the Lakers and you're making a big in-season trade of some sort, you just have to do it on the basis of, like, what makes us the best possible team. Uh, I agree. Let yes. the chips fall where they may. Like, by the way, just this was something that, I mean, I think we disagree on this because I think you like the Lakers offseason more than I do. I was talking about offseason winners recently, and, like, I kind of think, even though the Nets had a pretty quiet offseason, they're the winner because there was no Damian Lillard trade that changed the order of the NBA that, like, no Damian Lillard does not pose a threat to them right now. Bradley Beal does not pose a threat to them right now. Nobody raised their ceiling high enough to the point where they could credibly say we are on equal footing with the Nets right now. So even though they had a quiet offseason, I do think they were winners. Uh, I guess maybe if you look at it that way, I think that, like I said, I think the Lakers closed the gap. So uh, I, I, I do think that the Nets lead on the rest of the race is not as big as it once was. Um, so, I mean, I guess you could say get, re-signing KD long-term, that makes them a winner. But in terms of what actually affects them for next year, I don't feel as confident about their ability to win the title, but they're still um, my favorites by a decent margin, I'd say. So I think this is a good place to close. Factoring in possible injuries, factoring in opponents, pick a percentage for the Nets to win the title. Percent chance that they're going to win it? Yes. Uh, it's tough to put a percentage on it. I, I think I think they could win the title even if they lose one star. Okay, um, I'll, I'll rephrase the question. Over under 50% chance they win the title. Oh, over, I'd say. Really? See, my, yes, my view on this is that it takes like a Warriors level team to get to 50% because injuries are so ever present and just you never know with trades and such. So think about I, how, how much you expanded the pool in this podcast of teams. Like I'm, last year was an anomaly. We, we normally don't see teams like Phoenix make the finals, um, even though they were two seed. Like no one really thought they were going to do it. Like uh, there were the multiple contenders that got knocked out because of injury. The Nets, the Lakers, the Clippers. Um, and then the Sixers just fell apart. The Heat weren't even as competitive as we thought they'd be. The Nuggets got hurt. So there were multiple contenders that got knocked out, leading contenders. In a typical year, we like to expand the pool to maybe six or seven teams that have a chance of winning it like you did on this podcast. But in reality, we know there's only maybe four teams that have a realistic shot to win the championship. And it's usually two teams that are the heavy freight favorites. And I think it's similar to what we have here. The only teams I can see winning the title, unless we have an, another anomaly situation this year, are the Nets, the Lakers, um, the Bucks, and then the fourth team is, I guess, if the Warriors or the Sixers trade um, for, for a star or if the Clippers get Kawhi back going to the playoffs. To me, that's where it ends. It's only three or four teams that have a shot to win it all. So um, in that view, I think when you're looking at it in terms of three or four teams, the Nets have at least a 25% chance or a 33% chance, and I think their chances are better than the other teams. So I think it's about 50, if not more. Um, it's hard to say in percentage-wise. I do think it's very, very likely that the Nets are the heavy favorites, as we said, going into the season. Yeah, I think if you promised me full health, I would say like 70%, something like that, like pretty far above 50. Given the reality of injuries and in-season trades and everything, I'd say like 40%. Like I'd probably give them like a 40% chance, maybe give the Lakers 15-20, give the Bucks 15-20, and then have the rest just go to the field where like, Maybe the Warriors make a trade or maybe the Sixers make a trade or maybe the Clippers get healthy. But I, I do think we're on the same page. Like this is Brooklyn's title to lose. 
I feel pretty comfortable saying that. And the lens we should be looking at this regular season through is who is figuring out a way to compete with them. See, I think it's a little different. I think it's Brooklyn Silence to lose, but I think we're on a Nets-Lakers collision course. I think there are two teams that uh, are above the rest. I think the Bucks are on similar footing to the Lakers, but I think they're not close enough to the Nets, so they won't get out of the East. So um, I think we're on a collision course for Nets-Lakers. I thought we were getting it last year. I think there was a decent chance we would have gotten it if they didn't get hurt. Um, I think both teams are better served to be injury-proof this year in terms of the Lakers adding a third star, and God forbid LeBron or AD miss the playoff series, having a third star will be beneficial, regardless of how you feel about Russell Westbrook. And then the Nets, I just can't imagine they lose two guys at the same point um, like they did this year. And even when they did, and they faced the eventual champion, the best team that they were going to face, they took it to seven games in an overtime. So the margin was so thin for them to lose, even while having everything you could think of go wrong, that I just think Anything less of that, they were going to win the title. So um, that's kind of where I stand on that. I think that's the right place to close. Billy, you write for Nets Daily. Where else can people find your work? You can find me on Twitter at Billy Reinhardt. Recently verified. Big day. Um, so you can find Yeah, how me. did that work out for you? When I was verified, I had no idea. It just happened. Did you apply? You, you, you got lucky over the, the recent years when they stopped the verification. I was. I think that was the CBS thing. I think one of some yeah, of the CBS so. went up. Yeah, I think yeah. that's what they did. Yeah, but yeah, they recently released verification again, and I had applied once a few months back. I think I screwed something up, and it took like three weeks, and I didn't get it. And then I replied again, and this one took a very long time. They actually paused uh, applying for verification, so I was wondering when I was going to hear back. And then I just happened to get it uh, a couple days ago or whatever. So happy about that. A lot of hard work to get there, and uh, ready going to the season. Big season here. Yeah, I think it adds some legitimacy to this podcast that you're on <laughs> so often that you having the blue check mark really helps. I think being on your podcast helped me get the blue check mark. Yeah, you know what? It's a chicken and an egg thing. <laughs> All right, that's, that's the right place to close. Billy, it was a pleasure as always. Everybody go like, go subscribe, go do whatever you have to do to get people to listen. We will be back next week. Uh, we have some fun guests lined up for next week. So just keep tuning in, keep listening, and thank you for listening today.